0: Welcome to the Calm Surgery Podcast Edition, hosted by Christine Townsend.
1: Right. We are here, finally. Wonderful. Welcome, everybody. My apologies there if you caught the tail end of our technical snafus. Um, I am Christine Townsend. I am the host of the uh, wonderful PIO toolkit uh, comm surgery, but I would say that. um, So let's uh, put some chat on there. Okay, we've got chat going. Um, I am so excited about this one because I know everyone here on our panel is wonderful um, and a lot of fun and so good at what they do, otherwise I wouldn't have them on here. Um, I can't keep saying everyone's my favourite because then I'd just be the worst mum in the world, but um, I'm very excited to have these people here because you've got, um, I would say there's a really excellent um, thread of fire through this, if if there were such a thing, and I'll, I'll let everyone explain what they do, but this is your opportunity to ask people some questions that have maybe been troubling you or bothering you you just want some feedback on but you've got some outstanding expertise here um I always learn uh, an awful lot from my panel um that I have in and I know that today is not going to be without exception my English terrible anyway greetings from Austin Texas Christine Townsend your host I'm going to start going left to right Caitlin Justin's who are you, where are you, what do you do?
2: <laughs> who am I, where am I, what? who, what, when, where, why? Um, I am Caitlin, and I serve as the executive communications advisor at the Federal Emergency Management Agency, Um, and if you just break that down, I have the absolute honor to support the administrator, the deputy administrator, and the chief of staff uh, with anything and everything related to their communications, so it's been great, and I am currently in my office in Old Town Manassas, Virginia, (laughs) so
1: that's where I'm at. Wow, thank you very much. Look at all those fancy certificates. Um, John, we are so excited to have you. Tell us about who you are, where you are, what you do.
0: Well, oh, good afternoon from uh, Greater Boston. Um, I'm John Gilfoyle. I am the uh, founder and principal of JGPR. I'm a former Boston Globe reporter and spent the first couple of years in PR as Mayor Menino's Deputy Press Secretary in Boston and uh, learned an awful lot during that period of time. And uh, I actually found myself uh, at the finish line, near the finish line of the Boston Marathon during the attacks in 2013. And was one of the first PIOs activated during the response and the continuous effort that went on uh, during the uh, the attacks and the manhunt and the rebuilding uh, and reopening of the city after that. Uh, I left when the new mayor came in and founded JGPR. And today we do uh, on-call and contract PIO, PR, communications crisis, and web work uh, for police, fire and municipal governments in 41 states.
1: Thank you, John. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to hear from you. And I hope people have got some great questions for you also. Um, And I'm going to move on to Rita. Last, but by no means least, of course, please, Rita, who are you? Where are you? And what do you do? You're
3: right. Uh, I'm a battalion chief with Indianapolis Fire Department I've Been in a firefighter for 29 years and have served as the PIO for 15. So I am in Indianapolis,
1: Indiana. Well, um, I must say, Rita, I think you're probably the most glamorous firefighter I've ever met. Um, (laughs) even after a barbecue I look a complete mess uh, compared to you so uh, I'm very pleased and I think you've kind of uh, done yourself a disservice because you haven't really explained an awful lot about what you do but I'm sure that as we ask you questions uh, your amazing expertise and experience will shine through so I'm actually going to stick with you uh, for our first question because I know this is something that's really troubling a lot of people, um, and it, it's around budgets and resources. So, PIO staffing often at a minimum, you um, have to deal with this all the time. Um, so, when you've got tight budgets or no budget in some cases, um, you know, the, the pressure on comms is an all time high for sure. Um, how, as a PIO, do you continue to move the needle forward? without burnout without you know lowering the standards and i think um, quality keeping that quality high how do you do that to meet the ex, you know expectations of everyone not just the media but you know what 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 do you offer as advice for people in that position yeah so
3: you know we all in this genre have felt the
1: expectation
3: of what's happening in our environment as a communications person exponentially just get bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, when I very first took my position with IFD or accepted to be the PIO, um, you know, we were still using pagers and a desk phone and there wasn't a whole lot of uh, communication outside of people coming on scene or um, just face-to-face communication. And now it's just blown out of the water into all kinds of ways that Uh, They expect communication to be given, right? So the advent of social media and the 82 ways you can communicate um, with the cell phone, with a computer, with all of that stuff. And then you have the creative aspect that requires you to learn and manage and be perfect on using every single app out there. And as the apps change, and it just keeps changing and changing and changing. So in answer to your question, I am the only PIO for IFD. And I am doing all of the things. I'm doing all the video, all the communication, all the pictures, all of the community events, all all of the things. And what it's kind of required me to do is do a lot more self-care than almost I'm comfortable in doing. I have to really force myself to say it's okay to step back a bit and not be a thousand percent for every person that asks me for something, whether it's internal, external, whatever, which it to me kind of feels like I'm lowering my standard because I'm a little bit of a perfectionist and a workaholic and all of those things. But I've had to force myself to really just say, listen, Rita, it's okay. The job will still get done. The media will be happy. The chief will be happy. Internally, they'll be happy. And um, I think it's just a constant internal dialogue that you have to keep playing over and over and over. I don't have a budget. I don't have a single dollar allocated to my position. I don't have a single person allocated to cover me. You know, all of those things. And I'm not not whining. I'm just saying that's the reality of the world I live in. So I've had to manage it internally a lot. And I, I hope that rings true for some of the people because it's, you know, I rarely give myself days off or time off to do that, and I've and the more that I've done it, um, it, it feels really good to be able to do it and walk away for a minute and say, you know what, they're going to be just fine. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if that answers your question or not. but no, I think you. I, touched- I think self
1: care is okay. Yeah, I think you've actually touched on two important, very important points. Uh, Self-care, absolutely. And that's something I'm a massive advocate for, having burnt out myself and, um, you know, really, really struggled with that and trying to be all things to all people. Um, But I think boundaries are so, so important. Culturally, boundaries are not uh, particularly strong, particularly in, I think, emergency services and, you know, public safety, because we feel we have to be there all the time for everyone. Um, And also... um, you know that the whole the self care thing you it's it has to be uh quality over quantity, and that's and I agree with you. Yeah. You know, it, people yeah. will still be okay, and uh, yeah. you're okay. Um, yeah. And actually, I'm going to stick with this kind of question because I'm sure John, I'm going to go to John on this one, and um, because I know you work with a lot of uh smaller agencies, and they I am sure have this issue. And that's why, why you're around and you've been very successful with your, your um, business. So what, what advice would you give in this sense when you've got people that are, are the, so you know, solo PIO, no budget, no budget, how do you keep that quality up there?
0: So, you know, I, I put this out on, on LinkedIn or Twitter almost every day. I mean, you know, every day is a training day. Uh, I've been in PR for Thirteen years. I've been in the media for twenty years, and I just got back from the, the Advanced P.I.O. class through FEMA in South Carolina, and it was one of the best classes ever. Just to plug Caitlin's office a little bit, one of the best classes I ever took. I made a group of friends that I'm talking to every day from that class, and I learned a lot. And I and I I, I I've taught college PR and journalism for ten years. I I learned plenty in that five day period. So you have to keep training. I mean, firefighters and cops train every week um even if you're a small call department you're going Tuesday night you're training you're learning how to do things you're cutting cars apart pio is the same thing if you don't get better you get worse and we've been really lulled into sleep for, by two factors the last decade the economy's been terrific for the last 10 years and facebook and twitter have dominated so if you only use facebook and twitter you've been fine from about 2009 to now and that doesn't cut it anymore facebook was really taken a dive they've gone up a little bit because now Twitter's taken a dive but what we forget is and what a lot of us remember is uh, before Twitter and Facebook a hundred other social networks died Um, a, a very quick death to get us to that point where they had there were some dominance so training I mean my you know my clients all have PIOs and we work with them and we we train with them and we assist them but in almost every case the PIO has seven other job titles Um, very rarely do I encounter a department that has a PIO who's just the PIO and it's often a civilian that they that they had the budget to hire in some cases or they're a big city Um, so being able to find the time to focus on your PIO job the way you focus on your accreditation or standards job is extremely important to keep up with the current trends. Yeah,
1: Absolutely and it's one of my bugbears is like why are you a PIO and then something else it's like it, it needs that focus it's such a tough job to do and um, I'm going to move to Caitlin actually because you're kind of at the, the other end of the spectrum in terms of resources but I imagine that you have a real diverse kind of um, you have to be so reactive and you have to mobilize people very quickly and have a lot of people very quickly and then it kind of goes away again and so it's over like peaks or troughs for you and so from that other perspective what kind of advice would you give on this um this question in terms of keeping that quality high even though I imagine burnout is a massive thing if you get deployed in FEMA to a hurricane situation I see you go all over the place um but nowhere like a holiday <laughs> so how do you how do you keep quality up when you when you really your resources whether it's financial mental emotional whatever how do you do that?
2: Yeah, I think it really comes down to looking at your most important asset, which is your staff right the administrator often says that our workforce is indeed our most important asset and it's true. Um, Our reservist workforce is primarily our first responders into a disaster. Um, well, the first on the ground are usually our USAR teams and they do heroic work. And you know, they are the, the, they are the faces of the response when we are first on the ground and they have trained PIOs, right, embedded. And they're coming from all over the country in those specific task forces. So they're really trained in those first couple of hours to get that information out when it's really important understanding how many people we're looking for and what communities we're targeting our efforts in. Then we transition into this period of uh, the days and the weeks, sometimes response lasts into the weeks, but the days and the early weeks where we do have FEMA staff working really closely with the state. So we often lean on the state and our locals to be the primary messenger, and then we get into recovery. And that's where FEMA staff are much more visible, going on the record with local newspapers. National stuff will usually handle at the headquarter or regional level. but. Um, we i you know from my time in the field i think there's a huge advantage to cross-training the staff that you have deployed to the office of the external affairs right so we have multimedia specialists uh, we have folks on our translation desk and so finding a way to get them more integrated and out there and able to tap into those communication skills so when we are short staffed um, basically anybody has that toolkit in their back pocket so they feel confident Going on the record um, in front of the news outlets, which uh, with the amount of disasters increasing, communities have very unique needs. The, the challenges we're facing, it could be a housing challenge, it could be mitigation issues, you know, months and even years after the disaster ends. So I think looking at the folks that you have at your disposal at that moment and empowering them to expand on their skill set, and we can apply that across various landscapes is really probably our best, our best bet at this time and listening to them when they need a break, because burnout is definitely something that we're addressing, not only in emergency management, but I'm sure as Rita can attest to, fire service, EMS, law enforcement, and even our voluntary agencies, right, that are out there and usually the first on the ground and filling those gaps that government just can't sometimes.
1: Thank you. And I think um, the skilling, like multi-skilling people who maybe it's not their primary role in comms, I think um, it's something that a lot more people are coming around to because I know, I know, I think we all know communicators are massive control freaks. So it's like, well, only I can write this press release and only I can answer the phones to the media when in actual fact there are transferable skills that you can kind of train other people to have in their back pocket that might not necessarily be the the strategic stuff but certainly the tactical stuff and I think that um, in my experience when I have kind of found a handful of people that I can trust to do something on an aide memoir or a a checklist that takes away a lot of the stress of making those either strategic decisions or the creative decisions and Rita mentioned about being creative that's exhausting I mean Obviously, I am massively creative, but no. In, a, in all seriousness, it is when you have to use your brain in a different way. It does take it out of you. So, um, I think you you really touched on a very important point about um, making sure people are multi-skilled, so they don't there isn't burnout. And I'm going to stick with you, Caitlin, because um, you talk about you know burnout, and actually from that comes you know morale. It must be really tough for people who have to deploy, go out on the ground, and see this. You know, and I've seen you say it before on your posts on LinkedIn, Like devastation, the impact of that. It must get you down. I mean, when I was a police officer, I was going to something. I was there for half an hour I'd go away again. But when you have that constant, you're there, you're there for what, weeks, days, weeks, sometimes longer. What? How important to you and also all those you work with, um, is it that you get an agency leader in internally uh, in front of the workforce to sort of boost that morale? And and how would you go about doing that? Yeah,
2: we're really fortunate. and, And in my position, to kind of have a unique insight into what the administrator's priorities are with the workforce, right? You know, she, she started in the Air National Guard, right? She decided at that point in her life, she wanted to be a firefighter, then she moved into Aurora, Colorado, where she was a firefighter. And then she established the emergency management office with a staff of two. And then she moved on to New York City. And now she's She was with FEMA prior, before the administrator, led an IMAT team, so an incident management assistance team, one of those teams we send out to our our really, really big type one disasters. And now here she is as the administrator. So we're very, very fortunate to have somebody who understands that local perspective and the shortages and resources that we often have. Now at the federal level, we do have a strong workforce. We say we have over 20,000 emergency managers who are dedicated on helping people before, during, and after disasters. A smaller number of that are our field staff who absolutely are on the ground. And they are the ones that are walking through survivors, looking, I mean, they are literally on their doorstep, if there's even a doorstep left, hearing their stories of survival, the challenges they're facing in recovery, and these things 100% take an emotional toll on you. I can say personally, with every disaster that I've gone to, Hurricane Ida, Hurricane Ian, the tornadoes in Mayfield, at the end of those when i'm driving my rental car back to the airport i cry every time it is like you you hold it together throughout the entire response and for whatever reason you're driving to the airport and i cry and i think it's because you are letting all of that out you're remembering all of the faces and the people that you talk to and just thinking about what you're leaving behind right you don't really want to end your mission but there's other things that you have to move on to work so Uh, the administrator recognizes this and so she's she's really prioritized getting out into the field to disasters and you know of course we have to meet with our state and local partners and discuss kind of policies and how we can break through some of those barriers but she makes a point to stop at our joint field offices or our branch offices or meeting with our DSA teams and she's a huge proponent to talk into our FEMA Corps staff and those are younger adults age 18 to 26 who basically work for free. Um, And they, it's, it's kind of like an internship and you're a disaster, disaster, you work on a small team. So she recognizes their needs. And although that there's no, there will never be a set of words that's going to impact each person who's listening to you when you're speaking to large audiences, what you have to do is try. And that's what she does. And as long as we can continue to get her out there and spread that message of, You are the best. I mean, we just have to look at President Biden. He looks to FEMA over and over and over again because he knows we're capable to handle really complex situations. And that's an honor to understand. And that's also a recognition that our landscape is growing. It's changing. It's becoming more complex. The challenges that we're facing are impacting us personally. So all we can do is continue to turn to our leaders, give them that opportunity. And that's kind of my job to identify opportunities to get her out there and make the biggest impact in the in the way that makes the most sense right and the message has to be transparent it has to be honest she's very good at delivering that
1: and so i'm i'm curious as to how you would say for example you didn't have someone who was as willing to do things like that um and i'm sure we've all had this where we've got leaders that need to be out there but are reluctant leaders maybe how do you prepare them for that um i mean I, i i've met people that are naturals they are there they've been they've climbed through the ranks they know what they're doing they know their people they know how how it is but then you get others i just i don't think i need to how do you as a communicator um persuade and cajole to get you them have to, to do be a cheerleader,
2: and I was a cheerleader for many, many, many years, and the administrator jokes all the time. Whenever we go somewhere, she's like, this is my cheerleader, and that's true, and so you have to look at the principal in front of you and get to know them on a personal level in, a, in the right way, and that takes some talent, but uh, pull out their strengths and just be their cheerleader and give them the, the appropriate tools they need to get out there. Don't force them. Don't force a circle into a square or whatever that thing is people <laughs> say, just build confidence in them right yeah sure executives get to this level and they're all the way up here but that doesn't mean that they're comfortable speaking to people who are really vulnerable right so it's really you've got to be the kind of person who can cheer them on and and instill that confidence in them that maybe nobody else is doing right so you have to be confident in your ability to make them feel comfortable
1: wonderful thank you and i'm kind of going to circle back to something you said about when you leave um, your emergency um, situations and get in your car and you cry. I mean, I've been there. Um, it's, it's. I don't think anyone should ever underestimate the power of adrenaline mm-hmm. and what the physiological effect of stress can have on you. And it's not that, and I, I really want to say this to everyone, just because you cry, it doesn't mean you're weak. There is a physical response uh, to what you've gone through. There is a, a perfectly human response to what, what has happened to you. Um, and actually in the world where we, we probably really shouldn't experience as much as we've experienced but there have been many times that I have cried more at relief you know just processing so I will say at this juncture everyone it's so important to look after yourself um, and you know I can't I can't emphasize that enough but be aware of, of yourself so thank you for sharing that um, and you know it's always interesting to hear about your experiences because they are really quite unique Um and I'm going to move on to John, because I know, John, you have, as you said, you just finished your FEMA course, your your master PIO. um, I
0: have to apply the master program, which I will be doing.
1: (laughs) uh, My apologies. But you have been incredibly um, excited about it, I can see, from your posts, and and you loved it. I know that. So I kind of want to touch on a question we've had about – more tactical stuff. And I'm sure this is uh, what you would have covered in your course. And in fact, you, you probably already knew a lot of what you did This probably reinforced everything for you. But um, why is it vital for a PIO to report only to the, sort of the top leader of an incident or the incident commander?
0: Yeah, we. I mean, we've just seen so many examples of, of it going poorly because of the, the PIO being placed in a low level role. Uh, I mean, you know, Minneapolis being the most recent high level example of, you know, a PIO is relegated to that order taker role where they're handed something from a sergeant or a lieutenant, and they're told, okay, here, write this up, and that doesn't work, and it's a disaster, and a PR person, a PIO, which they're, they're the same, a PIO is a PR person, needs to be aware that if you're not in contact, being in contact with the incident commander or chief is one thing, but what you really need to do is be in the room with them when decisions are being made. Um, you know, my, my former boss, Mayor Marino, was in the hospital for months during the end of his administration. He was very sick at the end. There were three people that had access to him, his chief of staff, his policy director, and his press secretary. Um, and I can't emphasize that enough, You know how important it is to have um, the, the PIO or PR person involved in making decisions in boston boston police went through a a time of real low public perception um, you know really culminating around 2004 2005 um, and then they hired a a new commissioner ed davis who's a household name in in our world now and brought in a civilian named elaine driscoll uh, who was was a pr civilian not a cop um, to work with the cops who were in the, the the public information office and direct that office, but to only do communications. They brought in a communicator to do communications. And you have that mix of both, and when they have access directly to the commissioner and they're in the cabinet meetings, they're with the mayor, they're with the commission, they're, they're with the high-level people, uh, not just watching decisions getting made, but being asked for their input before final decisions are being made. It's an extremely important function. And uh, to FEMA's credit, that's one of the big things that FEMA will teach a PIO in the first PIO awareness online class. There's that, that chain of command, that org chart, and you report up only. You don't report to a section chief or a battalion chief or a lieutenant. You usually are one of those if you're if you're sworn, but you go to the top and the top only. If you're being asked to be relegated to a lower level person or report to a, a sergeant or a private firefighter, that's a disaster because that person does not have maybe access to the top either. So you might be two or three levels removed from the truth in some cases. And if you if you're a PIO and you put out something that's not true, it it, w- it will be a disaster, and you'll actually be known more for the lie than what you were lying about in the first place in, in your in your world. Um, but it can it can just be disastrous if it's not done correctly. And that's a lesson from corporate PR. Good corporate PR is with the C-suite. They're not done with the interns.
1: So what would you give, what advice would you give someone who's struggling because I've been there? Um, I think there's that, a multi-layered thing because as, as a woman who is also who was also a PIO and a civilian at the time, that's kind of like three things of like, I have to, had to fight and fight and fight. But just in the first instance, how can you, apart from just being really ballsy and just pushing back, what, how do you make sure that that doesn't happen, that you do get your you are you are respected for what you do, for what you have to say and make sure you've got that position?
0: Well, a couple of things. And, and, and again, that's no different than public relations as a profession, because the most people working in PR are female, but most people leading PR firms are men. And that's that's slowly starting to change. Um, and as as firefighting and policing are are changing as well with more female leaders coming on board. Spoiler alert, it gets better when you have more people of of diversity, um, both of gender and age and experience and race and culture, being in the room with you making decisions or maybe making those decisions. It does tend to improve things. Um, But put it in writing would be my recommendation. Um, The policies are are clear. Uh, You can pull from IACP. You can pull from FEMA. You can pull from your state agencies. They all say the same thing, and the best practice is not something that's subjective. It's not subject to to negotiation. The public information officer um, is advised and trained to report to the incident commander at a scene and to report to the top-level person or their office day-to-day. If that's not being done in your department, put it in writing. Don't mention it in passing at the water cooler in the locker room in the hallway. It has to be in writing, and it has to go you know, you have to follow chain of command, especially if you're a sworn officer, you're in a much more difficult position. As a civilian, I have a lot more freedom and, on where I can go and talk. But at the end of the day, if it's not documented, it's only your fault. And, and if you do something wrong, you're going to get blamed for it. So um, I think in government, the safest thing to do is put something in writing when you know you're in the right.
1: Oh, absolutely, and those who know me well know that I am always saying, "If it's not written down, it didn't happen." Uh, Rita, I'm going to come to you on this point because I bet you've, um, but you've had a few battles in your time with people, and you know had to really kind of push, push back on a few things. Um, do you want to um, sort of maybe talk to that as well, a little from what John was saying?
3: Yeah, so in I've been very fortunate uh, with the ch- the two chiefs that I've served under as PIO. I have always had a seat at the table, and um, on the few occasions where somebody is con- having a meeting or discussing something important, that I get information about. I and I'm not invited. I will invite. I will figure out how to get invited. If for no other reason than to be a listening ear in the room, because for me, and I I try to explain this to people, for me the the decision making process can sometimes give me the best information as to how i'm going to proceed forward whenever this needs to be communicated because i can understand how they got from point a to point b a lot of times when you're bringing pio's in at the tail end of something and then you have to bring them up to speed from what may have been a year's worth of conversations if you have a pio starting in the room even if the pio doesn't have anything to offer they can at least hear how it was decided Point A to point B, and how 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 you guys came to the decision you you made, and then that way when I have to talk to the media or about you know can may it may be something on a on a department wide scale or it may be an incident, when I can listen to how investigators got to their made their decision or I can hear how the chief came to the decision that he made about a position that the department is taking on something, I either know what not to say and how to steer away from the questions that i know are touchy and how they how people reacted during the meeting or you know i know hey this is going to be a good bit of information that will allow them to feel like they got a little bit more than just the perfunctory um you know here's the basics blah 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 and with and this gives me a little internal depth and so I was addressing a class one time full of chiefs, and I made that very statement. I said, you know, if you guys would bring your PIOs in on the front end instead of the back end, and it was like a light bulb went off and they all went, oh, well, I never thought about that. So then they all started doing it and they were like, this is really great because I don't have to spend two hours bringing them up to speed about something we've worked a year on. And so um you know, there's been very few instances where I've had to claw my way into a meeting, um, but I have had to. You know, there. I'm, I'm not. I'm willing to stop my if I if I hear something that I think, oh, this is going to be important, and and I need to be in the room, um, whether or not I'm a player or I'm just a listener. And a lot of times, you know, uh, I will offer an opinion if it's uh, even when it's unwarranted. But anyway, um, but I but I think PIOs need to PIOs need to be. Um, talking to their superior to their who, who their, whoever they report to and say you know this is why it's important for me to be part of the conversation it's not that I just want to be included there's an actual reason I need to be included and that is to
1: absorb the process and how you guys got mm-hmm. and I think perhaps it's something that is it does come with experience as well having that confidence to say no I need to be in on this um, Oh,
3: a hundred percent and somebody like me, who's um, been in this position for a minute, uh, is going to feel much more comfortable because I only report to the chief of the department. So I've got an easy path. And he, again, he always gives me a seat at the table. But for newer PIOs, I think if you can say that during your interview, when they're asking you if you even want to be the PIO, hey, this is my expectation. I would like to be part of the decision-making process or somebody
1: that's in the room when you guys make decisions, just so it helps me communicate that outward. That's a really good uh, piece of advice, actually, just doing it in the interview before just setting out your stall. And I think that lends itself to thinking, I think a lot of PIOs perhaps who are volunteered or kind of fall into the position don't necessarily uh, plan the career out so much. So it it is yeah. beneficial to actually sit down and think, well, actually, what do I want to do? What do I want to achieve from this? Because um, it does happen by accident a lot of the time, pardon the pun, but, um, you know, it having that time to think beforehand, what I want to get out of this, let's lay this out right now, so they know where I'm coming from. I think that's a a really, really good point. um, Most
3: most chiefs don't really understand the national uh, PIO thought process and how PIOs across the country are thinking, and so we, as we network through all our individual classes and, and things like this, we hear what's happening in the PIO world. And I think that's important for us to communicate that because when they go to IAFC or when they go to Metro Chiefs meetings and they they talk about how things are communicated out from their department and they can say, well, this is how PIOs are dealing with these, you know, uh, dealing with these information things and um so it's all give and take it's all good but I think you know we just need to be better at at deciding
1: what kind of PIOs we want to be Mm -hmm. and communicating more the irony so um I'm going to ask Caitlin about this I know again I'm kind of curious if this is slightly different because with such a large large organization with 20,000 I think you said um Is there more of a strict chain of command? Does it is it really like in place, or do do you still get people circumnavigating and kind of like?
2: No, we still very much follow ICS, and so you've got ICS purists that you know everybody's different. The way these JFOS are run, they're uh, headed up by a federal coordinating officer each, who have a very unique perspective on how they want to run that operation. Uh, but regardless, there will be an external affairs officer, and I've served in that role uh, multiple times, and this is where you have the structure and organization beneath you that meets the need, right? So um, each, like I said, each disaster is different. Um, Sometimes you need a larger uh, news desk and a larger creative team, so videographers, photographers. Sometimes you need a large Uh, translation desk. So the team beneath you looks different, um, but there is that structure, right? So that's never going to change. When it comes to steady state stuff. So we have 10 FEMA region offices. Each of those have a regional external affairs director. And so those are kind of their own little worlds. They understand their stakeholders best and they're running their operations to meet those needs of those communities. And then here at headquarters, yes, we have a very structured Uh, office where we have the director of external affairs, the deputy, and then comms for creative stuff, public affairs, intergovernmental, congressional, and disaster ops. So my position is actually a little nuanced. This has never been, this is actually a first position for the agency. Uh, The administrator had a very um, set she knew what she wanted and so that role needed to be kind of unique to what she wanted her administration to look like so um i am kind of a (laughs) not it was a little resisted by some right they're like what is this this is new to us this is definitely not ics uh but it's working for her and i think that this model um kind of of what i'm serving as for oa it's like a liaison across literally every region every program office and a convener to meet the priorities and objectives that the Office of the Administrator has, whether we're in the middle of a disaster or we're going out to do a stakeholder engagement uh, for something really cool like at Amazon. So there's flexibility when the need is clear and then you just have to build that consensus and get people on board to add to the momentum. And it's taken a little while because um, you have to uh, get people to build, you know, buy in to what you're, what you're trying to sell here. And if they find that it's effective and that they have a role because they're being empowered, I'm very much an advocate for empowering people to contribute their strengths and expertise to the situation. I do not know everything. No external affairs officer knows anything or everything. Uh, You have to depend on your staff. So although the structure is pretty solid, you do have some flexibility in how you can uh, utilize different people.
0: Christina, right, I, uh, I you. not know, highlight that enough. ICS, and I someone's done it on both sides of the aisle, what it really does is it removes all the ego from the room and gives and, you a job. Ah! Yeah, <laughs>
1: if I could just ask, sorry, but just for those who may not know, what is ICS?
0: Rita, you can you know, And it than me. Command. Thank yeah, you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it's so,
1: it,
3: it's so important to make sure that um, especially when you have and, and for all of us that are networking here today when you come across new pios that that is one of the very first things they understand because um you can get really uh in a in a trick 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 spot if you have a um a large incident and everybody doesn't understand chain of command or incident command or unified command and all of the things all of the terminology so um it should be priority number one for any new PIO to learn that system so that um, is- if they haven't especially from the
1: PIO perspective and for those yeah. um who might be interested in the UK the system is actually the bronze silver gold command System. yeah yeah um yep. which is uh all very exciting when you get told you're gold media because you think you're really snazzy but actually it just means all the decisions come to you. Um, So I'm gonna take a minute just to, I just want to sort of uh, recognize how many people have come in uh, to join us and I can't say hello to everyone but I'm really um, thrilled to see so many people from all over and like literally all over, including um, we have Joanne who's on a cruise. Um, so she has broken her, her pina colada uh, drinking session to join us from a cruise so thank you very much so I think that's that's quite amazing um, but you know I'm really just so thrilled that you're taking part so if you have got any more questions please keep them coming and um, this is really really interesting and I do have um, one question that I'm going to ask all of you about Um this is from Jessica she's in California um, and she wants to, I'll, I'll probably stick, I was gonna start with Caitlin on this one because um, you used to be a journalist, uh, broadcast. Um, now, so she wants to know what what you would uh, recommend to what tools or training you recommend for public speaking um, skills. But what I want to say is, and this is something that someone's always, or well, people are generally quite surprised about, PIOs in the UK never go in front of camera, ever. We are never the spokespeople. We never have media training in terms of, yeah, talking. We are the ones that find the people to do that. So people are always surprised when I say I'm not going on camera. I can't speak on camera. I hate it. It's just something that makes me feel quite unpleasant inside. Um, So I... Love that so many people here have that this natural charm it seems, but I'm sure there's some training behind it. So uh, perhaps Caitlin, you can tell me because I could do with some help as well myself. So where did you get your training from? Are you just a natural talent?
2: Well, I, that's what I went to school for. So I wanted to be a news reporter, and my first call out of college was for FEMA. So I did a lot of on-camera stuff uh, through throughout college. So any, I mean, from internships with the local Fox and Time Warner affiliates to, I served as the spokesperson for the largest police union in Texas. That was a lot of fun. Uh, Texas loves law enforcement. So that was an easy job. Um, And then once I got to FEMA, I actually was like, you know what, we have an opportunity to do more on camera engagement during disasters. So I said, why don't we spin up a Facebook Live for Hurricane Harvey? And once a week, I sat on camera. We had our little, our little low-budget uh, plastic background with its wrinkles in it, and we popped up a camera. And I picked subject matter experts from across the office to answer live questions from people on, like, "Hey, when are dollars going to start going out the door? What's mitigation? Um, I have issues with my application. So, what I would say is, find the need within your organization for more." If you're looking for on-camera stuff or if you're looking for public speaking, get in front of your company, get in front of your organization, but you have to find a topic that is relatable to the people you're trying to talk to. So, okay, what's the need? Let's see. Um, my organization, not my, I'm just saying for you, like there's an organization that could get its message across a lot more effectively if we put our principles out there doing videos, social media videos, right? And so you pick a principal and you think you've got great, um, you have great uh, potential to really get your message across. Let's work together and I can help train you how to deliver this information most effectively, right? And so through coaching somebody, you're practicing your skills. And if you're given the opportunity to do on-camera work, um go home and stand in front of the mirror and talk to yourself right as if you're talking to a group of people you have to like put away this um you know idea people are always like you're so vain you're taking selfies you're doing these videos but listen if you want to be a communicator you have to win an audience over and so like practice coach people find opportunities to talk to large audiences but be really polished before you do it so that you're invited back and your network grows and grows and you're identified as somebody who uh, people wanna listen to.
1: Thank you, Caitlin. I think speaking from my own personal experience, going out of your comfort zone is the key. Cause when I moved to the States six years ago, I was horrified I was horrified and frightened and just how I couldn't believe and then a the cultural you know how confident everyone seemed and then I just went out and everyone spoke to me and this is Texas they talk to you especially if you've got this accent so I had no choice but to speak more so uh, and then I get to meet people like you guys and it's just like yeah of course I can I know I can yeah I can so um, but John you must train people to do this. you must have all the expertise and advice all day long. What would you say?
0: Yeah, I mean, the most important thing is to be willing to do it. you know I, I mean I have chiefs that all I do is point the camera at them and, and they do their thing. They're like actors, they know what to do, they know what to say. Um, for most chiefs uh, our clients, I have to drag them kicking and screaming in many cases, and I'm okay with that because they they want me to do that. Um, as far as the training goes, the absolute best thing you can do is have someone record you and then watch it. It's not enough to practice. Yes, yes, I love that, that, that the crawling down your neck that you just experienced having me having <laughs> heard me say that nobody, I, I'm convinced even the TV folks in the room, nobody likes to watch themselves on the screen. So, you have to do it. You have to pause it. You have to do it again. You have to get the, when you go, uh, 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 or you go, uh, uh, now then, and then, but um, but um, you have to hear it. And then you will get better and better and better. But do it multiple times and torture yourself by making yourself watch it and watch the experience of you talking on camera. And it's okay because you're sharing the misery with everyone else who's ever done it.
1: I get a sense of schadenfreude here, John. I think you thoroughly enjoy putting I was people, a newspaper
0: reporter, so I never really had to do that. So I take great, great pleasure in watching <laughs> everyone uh, struggle with, with the on-camera. Now that I'm doing it, I've got to experience it more. But I've never had to deal with that in my career. I would just write stuff and people would publish it.
1: Yes, I know this feeling. <laughs> Words are much better than my face, I can assure you. Um, how about you, Rita? I mean, you must do it a lot. And also you must do it with like chaos going on behind you and you know like one of the hardest things I've found is that when like you've got buildings falling down behind you and you're still having to be like vaguely (laughs) compassed how do you do that what 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 advice would you give well um I too
3: like Caitlin went to college and became I was a journalism major and wanted to be in broadcast news. So I had a little bit of that. I knew kind of when I was asked to be the PIO, I knew what I was getting into. Um, But now that I'm actually doing it all the time, like what John said, I never watch myself ever. I learned that like about the second time I did it. It was horrible. And so in 15 years, I've maybe watched three of my interviews and I will probably never watch them. But anyway, um, I would just say my advice would be just to practice. Take every opportunity that you can to to practice and you know, when I was growing up, we didn't have all the selfies and the cell phones and all and the ability to practice just wasn't there unless you had knew somebody in the media that could, would be willing to tape you and offer you feedback, which is how I learned in journalism school. But nowadays you can record yourself, you can have somebody else record you, you know, watch it and see all of the flaws and, and do all of the things but, um, again, like what john said. of it is actually wanting to do the job. If you don't want to appear on camera, it can be literally internally terrifying every single time you have to step in front of the camera. So if you don't like the work, don't volunteer to do it because it will just be a push and pull that you will never escape. And there's even days, you know, there's just simply days I don't want to appear on camera and that we'll have six fires that day. And of course I'm like, oh crap, I got to appear on camera all day. But, you know, but I and I do it. But I don't always love it. You know, I just don't always love it. It's just not, it's not why I'm in this job. I love the part of the job where um, I get to control marketing the department and telling all of the stories and, and relaying the good works of the department. But being on camera is probably my least favorite thing. I do it because it's my job, but I don't love it. So that's one of the reasons that I don't ever watch myself on camera.
0: But and Christine, and Christine, there's there's a but with this because the one thing we need to remember in these training sessions is you don't have to be a great public speaker to be a great on-camera public information officer. Huh. Number one, they want authenticity. And mm-hmm. number two, they want your time. And if you speak to a TV reporter or you do an availability with the cameras for you talk for six minutes, they're going to use the best, 10 seconds of that Mm -hmm. and they're not trying to make you look like you're like you can't speak a sentence or they're not trying to make you look dumb they're trying to make a good story whether even if it's a bad story they're trying to make a good story out of it a good uh visual story out of it um they're not looking to make you look bad so that willingness is so important and you're gonna get a sentence out and they're gonna use whatever good material you get out they're not trying to showcase how poor of a public speaker you are at the end of the day
1: absolutely i think Yeah, that's a really good point because they just want to do their job and they want to make, they look silly if they, if they put something bad up there. And I think people are too quick to think about when it's going to end up on some like comedy show that the clip of you, you know, having a child behind you, flicking the V. Can um, I
2: counter that though? I am going to counter that. If you're a well-liked organization, sure. But people like FEMA, look, we have a, it's an uphill battle. We are often more disliked than we are liked in the, the stages of recovery. And I've seen plenty of quotes come out where it was a 20 minute interview and they picked the one sentence that you could not take out of context more severely. And it just makes us look like the villains. So some instances, yes, for sure, agree. In, in our business, your safest reading off of something line for line so that you can protect yourself because some of these local newspapers are absolutely as they should be protecting their their communities uh but we are often made look like the villain and so we're under incredible pressure to not say something that could be construed Mm. because it is so often the
1: case How, how do you deal with that caitlin would you do um a right to reply or a you know a rapid rebuttal do you just block them from coming to any other not that I'd ever do such a thing but um how do you you know deal with that kind of behavior because it's it's a mutually beneficial relationship the media and, and media handling so on that scale that's impactive yeah it do is, you call them out on it or just yeah let it go? you have
2: to call them and say listen look I you know I thought we had a good conversation that day Clearly, people have been retweeting that quote, you can see the public's reaction in the comments on the story, whether it's on Twitter, whatever. And if they're, if they're capturing that quote, because it's so obvious that it's like, once again, it's a villain quote. Just call them and be like, listen, we're not going to get anywhere in building trust within the community and with it, with each other if these kind of stories are making its way out there. Understand your frustration. We are all very much working together to make sure that we can get this assistance delivered. But this is really counterproductive to our mission, and we want to help these community members as much as you need them to be helped as well. Yeah, the, the
0: relationships, I mean, you know, it, it, back, back in the day. The relationships were so important because you had these reporters that were there for 30 years and they cared about the town um, and, and they cared about the relationship. You're seeing a lot more of that revolving door in newspapers, especially right now. But TV, too. I will say you're more likely to be unhappy with your quotes in a newspaper story than a TV story, generally yeah. speaking. But but even you know even that said, um, that's why the press release is not dead. Uh, the news release is not a dead thing yet. I mean, it's, it's social media is huge. Going on camera is huge but you have to write your narrative. If you don't have a document that summarizes all of your talking points that you publish on your website, on your social channels, that you hand out at the press conference, you run the risk of then either misspeaking and not correcting it soon enough or being misquoted um, by a journalist who, who maybe have already written the story in some cases. When you have that press release, you have an instant counterbalance to whatever they might put out.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've had the experience, obviously, I worked in policing for so long that I never actually bothered, unless it was factually incorrect. Um, every day was a a new day of just being vilified um, by tabloids particularly. And it was just, you know, choosing your battles. Um, and if we got a nice comment, I would frame it um it was always tiny but it was always (laughs) worth having um how about you Rita do you do you come up against that so much because I I mean I hate to kind of bring up the cliche of you know the fire fire are the heroes police are the villains but do you get that with you know in your line of work are you having to deal with uh the the bad comments at all or correct people uh
3: yeah occasionally from the media they'll they'll pick something out of there that will create a gotcha headline and, and I will quickly make a phone call. Um, and and I might, you know, they'll say, well, that's what you, you know, if this is what you said or whatever, and I'll resend them the media release that I sent and I'll say, no, this is what I said. And it'll, you know, so, so, but I don't get that very often. Indianapolis media is, is pretty middle of the road. They're not out to get you and all of that stuff. I think the difficulty that I see now is sometimes the comments on... Social media that we'll get on a particular story, you know, where we we can save a person out of the tree, but if you leave the cat up there, then they're pounding if we're leaving the cat. But you know, anyway, we save the human. And we don't have any authority to do anything about the comments. So people can just throw, we call them drive-by shootings. People just throw that stuff out there. And we as government agencies, we can't delete, we can't hide, we can't do anything with it. And I think it's frustrating because. You know, one one nasty comment can then trail into a whole whole different direction of how people are talking on your social media and they're just corrupting your page. They're hijacking the same narrative, you know, the nice narrative that you wrote. Now it's all hijacked. And you like Caitlin said, you just become the villain over not saving a freaking cat. So it just depends. I I don't know how we how we fix that because our hands are tied. I mean, as a government agency, your hands are tied. You can't do anything, and so I don't know if anybody has that as an issue that they're dealing with. What Caitlin, what do you what do you advise your people to do?
2: Well, sometimes it's very clear that those comments are like chat bots or bad yes, answers. right, right. And I say to hide them, or delete them, or block them because that is that is sometimes very clearly. It could be a foreign adversary, it could be a nation state actor, and that's not okay. And that can get rid of it, you know, that is
3: just... Okay, but is there a a federal stipulation that that prohibits you from doing that? Like, that's where I think the last thing that came out from the mayor's office was the law says you can't do that. The law says you cannot hide, you can't delete whatever, and not wanting to put the department in a trick bag, you kind of got
2: to leave it. So how is that... When How it's love offline if you have any. Yeah, no, I can't cite any, you know, federal anything on this, but if it is okay. clearly and clearly something right. that is okay, just going to do mis, dis, and mal damage, right? report it as a okay. spam or whatever, and then those will usually be taken off by the platform. But I just okay. think that as government agencies, we have a responsibility. Um, we talk about eliminating you know again miss dismal from overseas adversaries well look if they're on our threads and they're spreading this disinformation let's report it and do something about it
1: for sure okay. so um we have like three minutes left and i've got two questions that are in relation to this um and I, i'd i'd really like to get them answered um So I'm not sure you'd be the best, maybe Caitlin, maybe any, actually, can you chime in? What are your recommendations if you've got a leader or senior management that that gets, I love this phrase, gets wrapped around the axle about comments on social media? How do you talk them down, I guess? I'll
2: let somebody else take it. We don't have anybody that
0: gets spun up. Okay. Yeah, we don't either. John? John. I'll freely admit that I was typing in the chat when you said that. So uh, can you repeat the question?
1: Um, what do you do if you've got a, a leader or someone, um, senior management, who gets um, upset about comments on social media and they, they, they get their knickers in a knot about it?
0: I can go on for an hour about that, but I, I t- essentially teach that there's three kinds of people on social media. One third, crazy nutjobs. Most of them don't really exist. They're foreign adversaries. They're chatbots. You have to ignore them. Second third are serial question askers. They'll ask you what color the sky is. I heard a noise two hours ago. Is the trash delayed? Those are folks you want to coddle and answer their questions because it looks like you're a hero. Third, third is your fans, people that like every single thing that you publish. They ban the people that, that are on the first group from their group after a while and they help you answer the second group's questions. Ignore the first group, call this the second group and support, but don't be only focused on that third group because you have to fo- be focused on converting people from group two to group three we or up against the clock, but that's it. And I, I put in the chat, to Caitlin's point, these chatbots and foreign adversaries and, and, and malicious actors are in your local Facebook town groups too. They are not just going after the federal government.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But yes. Um, thank you. Um, just one last question. Um, and I think this might be a state by state. I'm not sure. I'm not a social expert. Can you delete comments on government social media channels?
0: You John, can. Gina? The short answer you is you okay. can. Okay. You can. If someone's posting hate speech or swears or clearly violating the terms of use You can report certainly to Facebook, but you also can delete things that are considered hateful or or obscene, certainly.
1: Thank you. Um, So I will actually look up some resources and post that on PIO Toolkit. I know we can we can do a guide quickly. Um, So we're going to have to wrap up there, but I want to thank you all so much. This has been incredibly interesting and fun and so you've all got your opportunity now uh, to uh, tell us something amazing wonderful helpful useful that you just want to say um let's start with John tell us about something
0: the most important thing I like to tell PIOs when I'm having given these great opportunities is you do important work and you matter I was standing between bombs when they exploded to my left and my right in 2013. I ran to city hall. I locked it down. I got on social media. I, I helped with press conferences. There's no picture of me carrying someone from the finish line. There's no, I'm not in the cover of Sports Illustrated. And that hit me with a ton of guilt and complex you know, de- you know, deconstructing my job as a PIO during the Boston Marathon bombing. It took me a long time to realize that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing that day. Um, the job of a PIO is extremely important. And if your chief or your commanding officer makes that clear to everyone else in the room, you've got a good job.
1: Thank you, John. Couldn't agree more. Rita. What, what have you got to tell us today? You can even sell us something if you do it like an Etsy shop or something. I don't know. It's up to you. Oh I
3: know. Uh, I'm going to 100% agree with John. And thank you for saying that out loud. Um, something that I like to tell people as the PIO is that if, and again, I've been doing this for quite a while. If you are not learning something new about your department every single day that you go to work, then you're not paying attention. And whether it's something very, very small that you learned about a member of your department or the department itself or its history, whatever learn something new every single day and be excited to figure out what it is that you learn new
2: every single day.
1: Oh, Rita, such pearls of wisdom. I completely agree. Thank you so much. Um, Caitlin, how about you?
2: You know, I I just want to say thanks, Christine. I think I've been on a few panels and this is probably one of the best ones. Um, I've really enjoyed speaking with all of you. So thank you for the opportunity to join. Um, I just want to say that we are in a day and age where we are going to be facing an increase in once again mis dis and malinformation. And so the job as the PIO is to get your message across as quickly, clearly, and effectively as possible. You know, It's like get, we all learned about the inver- inverted pyramid. get it to the top, engage people as quickly as possible, cut out cut out the noise, right? And so I just really, really encourage people to find ways, to make your headlines way more clickbaity, but truthful than the other folks on the other side of the field, right? So just really sharpen those skills and, and be somebody who grabs people's attention over and over and over again. And that's how we're gonna win this battle.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Caitlin. Um, I actually feel incredibly shallow with what I was going to say now. Um, <laughs> and is my thing to promote is that my first book comes out uh, in a couple of weeks and that is the Frontline Communicator. So uh, watch this space. I just need to finish editing it. Um, please, uh, well, everyone's always been already said thank you i i can't thank you enough caitlin john and rita it's been really brilliant um i this is a, a lot of time for you to give up for us and and i've learned a lot i know everyone else has so um again thank you um stick with us on pio toolkit i really appreciate all the support we get um join us on linkedin um you can find me on linkedin if anyone ever needs anything if i can't help you i know some people that that can so again thanks so much for everyone for uh attending and for our wonderful panel members. Thank you.